Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Monday night, we look into the resurrection of a Canadian hot cereal icon, Red River, invented in Winnipeg, discontinued a few years ago by an American company. It's been brought back to life by a flour mill near London, Ontario. We find out why. We head back in time to 1972 to find out more about the story behind one of the biggest and most enduring hits of the decade. Looking Glass's Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. It shot up the charts then and became a million seller. But the man who wrote and sang the classic went on to find a different kind of success in the music business. Belarus's opposition leader and democracy champion Svetlana Tiskonoskaya is in Canada for a first ever visit we find out what brings her here and what she would like to see our country doing to better support democracy in hers but first as a parliamentary committee begins to look into the important issue of the safety of women and girls in sport today we speak to two members of gymnasts for change who were amongst the first to testify to find out what message they wanted to deliver to mps A pretty important day for a group of people that we've spoken to on this show a few times. Uh, The group is called Gymnasts for Change. Uh, They launched an open letter back in the winter calling for an investigation into how gymnastics is run in this country, how Gymnastics Canada, the body that oversees the sport here, operates. Uh, Their open letter that started with just a few dozen signatures now has more than 500. And they were the first witnesses up today as the Standing Committee on the Status of Women began its hearings on the safety of women and girls in sport in Ottawa. Uh, Again, Gymnastics Canada, as well as other national sporting bodies, have been under pressure to work with the new Sport Integrity Commissioner, whose responsibility is to look into these allegations of abuse and mistreatment in sport. Um, So appearing today uh, were the co-founders of Gymnasts for Change. As I mentioned, more than 500 current and former gymnasts now count themselves amongst them. And what they want is they want an independent, national, third-party judicial investigation led not by a sports expert, but by a human rights expert. Here's Kim Shore. Gymnasts for Change Canada was a movement we hoped we'd never have to start. Collectively, We believe that if we inform the provincial governing bodies, Gymnastics Canada, and as a last resort, Sport Canada, then somebody, anybody, would listen to us. They would act with haste to protect athletes. But we were wrong. And joining me now is Kim Shore, a former member of Gymnastics Canada's Board of Directors and co-founder of Gymnasts for Change, and Amelia Klein, who is a former elite gymnast and the other co-founder of Gymnasts for Change. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you Thank so much you. for having us. Amelia, I'll start with you because it was, I mean, you both testified today in front of committee in Ottawa. It's always daunting, I know, just try and get up there and deliver your message the way you want to. Uh, what was your message, message today to MPs? The central message is essentially repeating our call that we need a national judicial style investigation into these issues. These issues are just too broad and too big and too severe for this to be under any other mechanism. So we're very much hoping that the committee will support us in that recommendation. And we're hoping that they will start the process of holding these institutions accountable as well. They are able to call witnesses, and we hope that they will do that and and start to call some of the leaders of our sport to account. Amelia, what would you like 
what would you like to know? What would you like other Canadians to know about how your sport has been run? It's incredibly unfortunate because the sport is at its core, a very beautiful, wonderful foundational sport for children to engage in. But unfortunately, the way that it has been delivered to date has been to essentially allow systemic child abuse to run rampant through the sport. And I think it's important to realize that this unfortunately is not a sport issue. This is really a human rights issue. This is a child's rights issue that's playing out inside our sport. And that's really what we're trying to get rid of. Something that you experienced firsthand. Last we spoke, we talked about it, of course. It is, unfortunately. I think my story is incredibly common. We're certainly having hundreds of other gymnasts coming forward with extremely similar stories of emotional, psychological, physical abuse. We're unfortunately seeing a lot more sexual abuse than we anticipated as well. So it's it's horrifying. And it really is something that requires the urgent attention of our federal government. Kim, you worked for a long time in many different facets of the of, of the sport. Right now, I gather Gymnastics Canada is trying to at least sh- show that it's willing to to change or make amends or try to meet some of the demands that are out there. Have you not? You haven't seen enough yet, though. No, we haven't seen it. Not only have we not seen enough, we haven't seen the right uh, efforts. We haven't seen them consult the survivor group even once. We have a different experience as survivors than athletes do who have not been through abuse. Those are two very different perspectives, both very important, but both that need to be considered. I feel that they are still trying to maintain control of the improvements of the processes of the mechanisms that they are using to say that they're, they're trying or they're making improvements, but they're They're only doing things that they control. And so we're at the mercy of trusting them to be transparent, to come forward with historical secrets and reports that have not been uh, publicly shared or even shared amongst uh, Jim Can leadership. You know, we saw with Hockey Canada, transparency doesn't come easily. MPs have to ask the same question over and over just to get a truthful answer. Yeah, it reminded me of Hockey Canada when you spoke of it, that uh, trying to maintain control of the narrative is, is it seems very hard for these organizations to let go and open up the doors. Yeah, it's really unfortunate because, you know, a lot of these problems predate anybody in leadership. A lot of these problems, you know, just need to be aired so we can not only figure out how to fix them today and give justice to the people that suffered, but to ensure that we don't make these same mistakes in, in the future. Tell me a bit about the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner, because I imagine this was Ottawa's attempts to try and find um, someone that you could go through, but that's not what you want. It really isn't. And I'll let Amelia speak on this one more fulsomely because she did a great job today. Sure. It, it was set up ostensibly as an independent mechanism, but in practice, it's deeply embedded within the sport system. There are actors who are involved in the Office of the Sport Integrity Commission, in the SDRCC, which oversees the office, who are very much part of the sport system that athletes have repeatedly said they don't trust. 
the the office itself lacks a lot of the powers that would be necessary in order to do an investigation like the one we're speaking about. Namely, it it has no subpoena power. It has ability to compel the National Sport Organization to even participate in an investigation. And it has no ability to uh, enforce any recommendations that are made out of a report that comes out of their office. So it's unfortunate, but it it lacks all of the the mechanisms and the levers that we would need in order to actually make meaningful change. So you see it very much as a paper tiger in some ways. In some ways, yes, we are. We are hopeful that there is a place for it in sort of the new sports system that we hope will come out of all of this. But in some ways, it's it's the cart before the horse. We have to fully investigate the the issues before we can figure out what the solution is. Right now, OSIC is being presented as the solution, but we don't even have a good grasp on what the problems are. Kim, that must have been. I mean, you've, it... Since we last spoke in the in the winter uh, or, or in the early spring, do you feel like there's been progress? Because it feels like it's being you're being listened to. I feel like there has been some progress, and if I'm honest, the most progress we've seen is in the healing and bravery of the survivors. You know, we started this open letter and had 70 signatures. We are now over 600, and I can tell you, the more advocates like Amelia and I and the rest of our steering committee are out in the public eye, in the media, the more survivors that have been coming through, we are getting emails every single day from new survivors. So we are in the hundreds, just our seven people alone are in the hundreds of stories with different survivors. I would say progress, we've been heard. And we appreciate being heard. The MPs have heard us. The government has heard us. The sport minister has heard us. Media has been a tremendous partner in amplifying our voices. So we feel heard, but we are so ready for action now. Yeah, Amelia, action would look like, and we spoke about this at the beginning, but action really is that national independent third-party judicial investigation led not by sports experts, but you want human rights experts to look into this. That's right. As we've been saying, this this really is a human rights issue that is playing out inside sport. And it's just not appropriate for the same within sport to be handling this. Everything needs to be investigated and it needs to be investigated by people with proper experience into child abuse, child exploitation, human rights experts, all of those types of people who are outside the sport system, but who can look at this from a proper angle. Kim, you said something that was quite um, striking today about how gymnastics was rotting from the top down and the bottom up. How so and how do you fix that? Well, again, I think we get to the truth or we get to the the core of the matter, the rot of the matter, and we do that by a judicial inquiry, uh, creating a space where people fr- feel comfortable to report. You know, we've got coaches in our system that feel like they are the outcast because they're trying to deliver the sport in a safe and healthy manner and they are not supported by the toxic culture around them. So those people need a venue where they can come forward and start talking about what's actually happening in the sport, in the clubs, um, because that's where the biggest amount of change needs to happen. The feet on the on the ground in those gymnastics centers where they are the ones interacting with children on a daily basis. 
it'd be great if, uh, you know, organizations like Jim can and the provincial governing bodies would come out with some very robust uh, policies and mechanisms and start taking brave steps. You know, we often hear provinces saying, oh, but that's the national body's jurisdiction. And the national organization is saying, oh, that's the provincial jurisdiction. No, somebody just come up, uh, be brave and say, look, the following actions are no longer allowed in gyms in Canada. Nobody can weigh their gymnasts. No one's allowed to yell at gymnasts. Parents must be allowed to view, to come and go freely. Um, so create proper safe spaces for them to view from. You know, some rules like that that would 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 start. But if we just do those sorts of recommendations or those quick band-aid solutions, it will not get to the core of the matter and we'll never see the full scope of what's going on and never be able to address it. So we want, we want it all. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's, there's always, it's always good to ask for as much as you, you think you need, right? Amelia, is there enough good left in the system to build on? I think there's reason for optimism. I don't think any of us would be sitting here doing this work if we didn't have hope for this sport. But I, I think we're under no illusions that there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And there are a lot of people sitting in positions of leadership who have enabled, who have perhaps uh, even promoted some of these coaches that we know have been deeply problematic. So there is a lot of work to be done. But as I said, this is a beautiful sport. It can be a really foundational, wonderful thing for kids. And that is our goal. We want this to be a safe, joy-filled sport for, for the next generation. And do both parents of gymnasts and those outside, like myself, need to change their attitudes at all? I think for a long time, we we, we talk about, we turn on gym, gymnastics at the Olympics and we want to see us win, right? And there's a, And that I imagine trickles through trickles right down and into the sport itself when it becomes about winning, not about anything else. I agree. I I've said before, we need to stop sacrificing our children on the altar of winning at all costs. That needs to stop that entire attitude that whatever it takes to get a medal is worth it. Today at the hearing, we, we had a demonstration of our, gymnasts for change team and kim asked us you know was the the pain and the suffering and the abuse that you endured worth the medals that you won and the resounding answer is no none of us would would go through any of this again just to win medals it's it's never worth it amelia klein kim shore thank you so much once again for joining me i appreciate it thank you so so much for having us I want to thank listeners for sending in their um, cereal loves. Grant from Winnipeg grew up on Red River. Great stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> Not great. Good stuff, as I remember. Lots of whole grain. It certainly is crunchy. I remember that part of it uh, as a kid. My mom used to make it a lot. I think I actually preferred cream of wheat, but maybe not. Delish with honey, says Grant. Uh, cream of wheat and porridge in the mix as well. Uh, Shreddies is my cereal, says Kevin. Shreddies are good, aren't they? Do you like them when they get mushy, though? That's the one thing when I was young. I always felt they got mushy too fast. Maybe they're better mushy. I don't know. Cat and Gimli. Not too far from Winnipeg. Not too, too far. Red River cereal is awesome. It's even better as an ingredient in bread. Yeah. One of the things that um, that we'll hear about is that uh, people use it for all kinds of stuff. It's not just for food, obviously. They use it for, for making stuff as well, which is um, 
which is interesting because I didn't actually know that. I don't think I'd ever seen it used for other purposes. So about two years ago, uh, Smuckers, the jam company, they're based in Orville, Ohio. They had bought Red River cereal back in the mid-90s. And they were making it. They were even selling it in the States. Now, this cereal was invented in Winnipeg back in the late 20s. So it's almost 100 years old now. And for many years, it was produced domestically. And then, of course, it was sold like so many things are. Um, and then Smuckers decided they weren't going to make it anymore um, due to low demand. And that's where my next guest comes in. Mark Rinker owns um, Avra Flower, Arva Flower Mills, rather, outside of London, Ontario. Uh, they just bought it a while back. And one of the things he noticed early on um, is that people were coming into the store that they have as part of the mill asking for Red River because they used to sell it. They didn't make it, but they sold it. I should mention that the flour mill is North America's oldest continuously operating commercial water-powered flour mill. Uh, so it too is an icon. So Mark decided to start looking around a bit um, to figure out what happened to Red River. Why did it? Why couldn't they get it anymore? And could you bring this iconic flour mill and this iconic breakfast cereal back together? And the best part of this story is that, as far as I can tell, Mark had never had a bowl of Red River cereal before he embarked on all this. He never tasted the stuff. So joining me now is Mark Rinker, owner of Arva Flour Mills in Arva, Ontario, not far from London, Ontario. Thanks so much for your time, Mark. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. So this cereal itself has a really interesting story because it is, in fact, Canadian, right? It has Winnipeg roots. It does. Um, it was, I guess, created back in the uh, mid-1920s uh, in, in Winnipeg, as I understand. And uh, yeah, we're coming up to nearly uh, a century for this uh, iconic Canadian brand. Amazing. How did it wind up in American hands? Do you know? It was sold to, uh, Smuckers is a... Um, the jam a, company, right? Yeah. They're based out of uh, Orville, Ohio. So they acquired the uh, Red River brand back in uh, the late 90s, and they made the cereal in the U.S., and uh, it was distributed primarily in Canada by Smuckers Canada, but uh, there was also some distribution in the U.S. We've had a ton of interest from Americans looking for the, uh, the cereal now. Yeah, I can imagine. So do you have a, uh, an idea of why, why it was discontinued, why they decided it was no longer... Uh, profitable enough or in demand enough to make? Well, I, I can't really speak for Smuckers other than, uh, you know, as part of our due diligence, um, you can see the financials for the brand. The brand slowly um, lost sales momentum, I think, over the past decade. It was still viable, but, uh, you know, every company has their own profitability threshold and, you know, it must have fallen underneath that threshold uh, for them to uh, go ahead and discontinue it. It certainly is a much loved brand, though, especially on this side of the border. In my recollection, I ate it as a kid. I don't know if you did. <laughs> you might have. Um, I did. No, it, it, ironically, really? um, I was a cold cereal kid growing up. The first time I, I heard of Red River it was actually as actually after we we had signed for the mill, but not taken possession. And I was just right. doing research in our in our mill store, and customer came in and asked about Red River cereal and. You know, the manager at the time said it's not available, but we make our own version called Medway River. And I thought nothing of it. And then a couple of days later, I was in the store doing the same thing. And another customer came in asking for Red River. And when they left, I, I asked uh, uh, the manager, what, what is it with Red River cereal? And she said, you know, we used to carry it. We can't get it any longer. Um, customers are coming in here asking for it all the time. And she said, you should look into it. That eventually led to the sale of the uh, brand to us. Yeah. How did that work? Did you just call up Smuckers and say, listen, this is something we think uh, we'd be interested in? Essentially, um, I didn't really know where to start. So I, I just 
lobbed some calls into their corporate office in uh, Orville, Ohio, and uh, eventually was connected to a brand manager at their Canadian office in Toronto. And um, and that started a, a dialogue with a couple of the senior people there. This was back, I guess, initially, initial discussions were September of last year. And eventually it led to uh, commercial terms that worked for both companies. And uh, we took the brand over officially uh, the start of June of this year. There's been a lot of excitement around this. You, you must see that, right? I mean, uh, I guess it had a real devoted following out there and people were getting a little worried because I guess whatever supplies remained started to run out. So really there was no more. There was no Red River cereal to be had anymore. And you've kind of stepped in and filled that void. What's the reaction been like since you set off on this new uh, venture? It's been phenomenal, actually. We knew the uh, reaction would be positive, uh, bringing back the uh, uh, the brand. You just got to read the Discord on the internet to understand that people were upset that it was gone and uh, they were trying to look for a replacement. But honestly, we were been, been blown away by the the real visceral emotional attachment that that folks have with the brand. It's just you know we 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 get emails and phone calls and letters every day. Really. And it, it's not, yeah. People w- wanting to know where they can where they can buy it. Um, they want to share their story and their attachment with the cereal. It's I've never seen anything like it. It reminds me actually quite a bit of when we when we acquired the mill uh, back, uh, I guess a year and a bit ago. When this when the story broke that the mill was uh, being sold and going up for sale, it was thought the mill was closing. And um, when we purchased the mill and uh, kept the business going and, and didn't change the property, you know, people were very glad. And uh, it's sort of the same reaction we see with the Red River cereal. Because um, it, it, a bit of the history of, of, of the of the Arva flour mill, it is, I gather, and I just read this, the, the oldest continuously operating commercial water-powered flour mill in North yes, America. Yes, in, in North America. So the mill itself, um, we're coming up on 203 years old. It was um, operational uh, back in 1819, uh, and it's been in continuous operation since. So that actually ranks us as Canada's sixth oldest uh, company. Wow! So it it is it is it is appropriate that you would take over this other iconic brand, isn't it? It's somewhat poetic, really, that uh, this nearly century old iconic brand is uh, with the um, historic two century old uh, Arva flour mill. Uh, they complement one another, it seems. Now, I gather they changed the recipe a little bit uh, back about a decade ago uh, in the states, and, and tell me a bit about that because you're going to change it back, apparently. Yeah, they, the original recipe was cracked wheat and cracked rye. And back in about a decade, uh, decade ago, like you say, uh, Smuckers changed the formula slightly to substitute steel-cut wheat and steel-cut rye for the cracked variety. And, and steel-cut is a coarser cut of the grain. And, um, you know, you could just read online where, you know, some of the feedback was such that, you know, because it was a coarser grain, it, it required longer to cook. And it changed the texture to a more thick or lumpy uh, hot cereal. And uh, we decided that we would revert back to make it the original way with cracked wheat and cracked rye. And the the texture is a a little smoother and doesn't take quite as long to prepare. A bit more like the one I remember from childhood, right? Which we back in the 70s when it was just out of that box. How is it with with sort of distributing something like that? Because I imagine Smuckers would have had a pretty vast distribution network. Um, Are you able to put it back in the places where people would be, would have seen it a couple of years ago? That's, it's still, we're still debating that because the, uh, like to put it back where the brand didn't do well, you know, doesn't make too much sense. And, And grocery is a very, expensive sandbox to to play in right so right now where the cereal is available 
on our website and in, in our, our store at, at the mill here in Arva. And uh, we have a few select retailers that we've, uh, that we've opened up, but yes, our, like our plan is to eventually um, get back into grocery or specialty grocery. You know, that's where we think the, the brand can really uh, thrive, but uh, you know, to be found in every grocery store across Canada, no, I don't think that's um, going to be our plan. We're going to be more selective with our distribution than that. I guess you have an opportunity now to kind of rethink how to how to market it, right? Uh, something that yeah, smokers absolutely. probably didn't. Yeah. No, we 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 have the, the the brand and the trademarks and the formula, and then it was uh, you know we just reimagined uh, you know how can this brand be uh, successful and uh, accessible, and uh, so that's what we're striving to do. It's been a tough year for grain prices, though. It, it's uh, it must be. I mean, it must come into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, we're a flour mill primarily. You know, the prime ingredient for flour is is grain, and uh, yeah, back uh, with the invasion of uh, Ukraine, um, grain prices um, nearly doubled overnight. And uh, you know, we're a smaller mill, so we buy in the spot market, and so we were hit quite hard. But uh, you know, prices have come off the boil. A little bit, you know, we've been able to survive that patch, and uh, actually, it kind of forced us to look at the flour and, um, you know, what is the the best use case for the flour that we make. And so, we ended up making a few different products uh, with the flour that we mill uh, here at the mill, and uh, we so we've launched, you know, cornbread uh, pre, uh, cornbread mix, uh, some four different flavored uh, beer bread mixes, um, red fife pancake mix, and those have proven to be um, quite popular. So, hadn't it been for that sudden price spike, maybe we wouldn't have envisioned those those products and, and product launches. And Red River too, you have Red River in your stable now. It must be, it, there is a responsibility with it, isn't there? I, I imagine you must feel a bit of responsibility now to, when you have that brand under your umbrella. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's the same as the mill. You know, the, the mill is a truly historic uh, uh, property and, and uh, yeah, we do have a great regard for the the land and preserving the uh, the mill and the history and it's the same thing with the the Red River cereal. It, we know it's a an iconic brand, and you know we uh, have so much respect for our our customers and uh, their affinity and uh, love for the for the brand. Um, you know we don't want to do anything to kind of get in the way of that. So do you get um, you haven't been able to sell it in the states again? I know you mentioned earlier that because Smuckers was making it at one point, there was actually some demand in the U.S. for this. You know what one thinks of as a Canadian cereal. Yeah, there's not a, a seem an hour, an hour go by that I, I don't get an email from someone in the U.S. Uh, asking about Red River cereal. And, you know, on our website, we just mentioned that we can't ship to the U.S. at, at this stage anyway. And, uh, you know, that will compile their their name and email addresses and notify them uh, when it's available. So, it, yeah, there certainly is every bit of affinity for the cereal in uh mainly the northern U.S., um, but, you know, we get emails from, gosh, like all over the all, all over the, the down into Mexico, uh, in um, the UK. Really? <laughs> it seems that, uh, yeah, Canadians, when they, um, when, they, uh, when they migrate, they, they don't forget the brand that they love. So have you tasted it yet? Did you eat it at last? Oh, yes. Yeah. And? Yeah. And? It's good. It's, um, it's an know, acquired I, taste. I mean, I've had it again as I've been older. I'm like, I think it tasted better when I was young, but it's still really good. Yeah, I haven't made bread with it yet, and a lot of folks make uh, uh, bread with the with the cereal, and I'm anxious oh, okay. to uh, to try that with our flour. But uh, yeah, there's uh, no shortage of of recipes that are out there um, to make you know bread and other products uh, from the cereal, as opposed to or you know along with the hot cereal, of course. Yeah, well, Mark, I'm sure there's a lot of Canadians who are happy that you've taken this on. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for your interest, Ben. I really appreciate it. <laughs> 
50 years ago, that song was number one. That's kind of how I fell on it, because I hear it all the time still. 50 years ago, um, a mighty long time. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, someone brought up a really interesting, uh, sent us a quick note about climate change. Again, I always love this one, because you hear people like, oh, there are dissenting views on climate change. So most recently, 99.9% of peer-reviewed scientific papers agree that climate change is mainly caused by humans. 99.9%. That of 88,125 climate-related studies, 88,125 climate-related studies. They looked at 3,000 studies between uh, over the last decade and found three that were somewhat skeptical. So this whole idea there's some sort of equivalence. Listen, we don't have to agree on how it's fought. We don't have to agree on how serious it is. We don't have to agree on a lot of things. But we're not going to talk about false equivalence on this show. 99.9%. Just remember that. They can let you go back to YouTube now. Um, love Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. It is one of those songs that has stood the test of time. I remember hearing it for the first time in the 70s on the radio, hearing it again in the 80s. It's been remarkable. Uh, and it stuck around. It's part of popular culture. It was number one here, number one in the US, number one in Canada as well, a million seller in the early 70s. And then because of a revival of yacht rock, so to speak, um, it sort of stuck around in popular culture. The Red Hot Chili Peppers do a live version of it, believe it or not. Uh, Kenny Chesney does a country hit that's really quite incredible. Uh, it's been in the film Lords of Dogtown, Say Anything, Charlie's Angels, a very Brady sequel, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and even The Simpsons. Randy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. But my life, my love, and my lady is the sea. Poor Brandy. And Selma, hmm. do you think you'll ever get married? Oh, I don't know. Why? You know somebody? No. Yeah, Selma singing Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. Uh, not the greatest version of the song, clearly. Amongst others, uh, there's many other places it's been. It's fitting because the musician who wrote the song and sung lead vocals on it, Elliot Lurie, went on to have a really successful career in the movie music business, oddly enough. So it makes some sense that the song still lives on in film and so forth. Joining me now is Elliot Lurie to talk about Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, 50 years later. Uh, he was the co-lead singer, songwriter of Looking Glass, and a longtime head of the music department at 20th Century Fox, also a music supervisor, independent music supervisor, worked on a ton of movies uh, like Charlie's Angels um, and Night at the Roxbury, amongst others. Thanks for your time. Welcome. You're welcome. Good to be here. 50 years. It goes by, it goes by so quickly, but... Um, the longevity, I, you know, I heard Brandy again the other day at the grocery store and thought of, and it's what led me to you in some ways. Does the longevity of the song surprise you? It does. I mean, it, it really does surprise me because there were songs that were far bigger hits back then that haven't hung around uh, the way Brandy has. Um, you know, of course, I'm very pleased by it. But yeah, the longevity definitely has surprised me. You must still hear it. You must still hear it when you're out. I mean, I in do, different right? places. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I hear it and, and, and friends and long lost relatives, you know, text me or contact me on Facebook and say, hey, I heard you at, the, as you say, at the supermarket today or or, or, or you came on Sirius XM again today. Tell me a bit about, about how that song came together, because I know at the band itself, you had, you had a couple of different incarnations back in the late 60s, early 70s. You were all at Rutgers at the time uh, in New Jersey, studying New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, and you were a huge, hugely successful sort of local college band right 
Yeah, we were we were a big band on campus. We played all the fraternity parties, the local bars. We were a cover band. We would pay, you know, play five, six sets a night and cover whatever was popular around the uh, dormitories at that time. Everything from uh, Jimi Hendrix to the Rolling Stones to uh, Poco and Buffalo Springfield. You know, we were a cover band, and then we started writing a bit. We would sneak our original songs into the set, and we were well-received enough so that people put up with those and came to, to know those as well if they followed the band around. Brandy was actually written after after we left Rutgers. We, we had uh, graduated, so we had our degrees in our back pockets, so and we said, well, let's trust to make this music work. And if it doesn't, we can always go get real jobs because we did finish school. We rented an old farmhouse way out in the northwest corner of New Jersey, which is right near the Pennsylvania border. It's very beautiful and rural and streams and pine trees and all. We found this old farmhouse with three bedrooms upstairs and this big living room downstairs. And three of the four members of the band lived in the house. And we would set our equipment up in the big living room downstairs. And all week we would rehearse and write songs and make demos on old reel-to-reel tape recorders. And on the weekends, we would go out and play gigs to make the rent. And we did that for almost a year and finally hooked up with a manager who got us a record contract. That farmhouse had a connection to Harry Chapin, didn't it? Speaking of Cats in the Cradle, <laughs> that's his like another mom, big name. I think his mom owned that property. Um, wow. She wasn't living there when we rented it, but I think that we did make the rent checks out to, to her, yes. <laughs> Amazing. So the song, I mean, I, I gather it took quite a few different versions to get the version of the song that you wanted, and you heard some versions that you didn't like over the years as well. Yeah, what happened was... We, of course, we had recorded many demos of it. Uh, so, you know, those count those recordings. We've done a few of those. But once we got signed to the label, uh, Clive Davis, who was the head of the label at the time, right. suggested that we go down to Memphis and have Steve Cropper produce us, Steve Cropper of Booker T and the MGs fame. And we were very excited to do that. We went down there, recorded four tracks with them, one of them being Brandy. And it went very well. And we came back to New York and we sat in Clyde's office and we played those versions. And I think uh, everyone agreed that they sounded like very well-recorded versions of a real good bar band, but they didn't sound like a hit record. And we actively wanted a, a top 40 hit record. So Clyde then put us with a staff producer from the label. And we went in with him and recorded the basic track and it came out really great. Oh, at first he had suggested to us that, um, cause he was an old time staff producer at the label. He had suggested to us that he wanted studio musicians to play the track and he just wanted us to sing on it. I'm sure it took us a lot longer to, to get the track right than it would have for studio musicians. But it also, I think when you talk about its longevity, part of why it does hold on is cause it doesn't sound like a bunch of slick, recording musicians. It sounds like a real band. In any case, we went through the recording process with him and he wanted to take it way over in the pop direction. He wanted to put sound effects of a ship's bell and waves at the beginning of the record. He wanted to bring in a certain arranger who was a real sort of mainstream New York pop arranger. So we balked at that and then we finished the record on our own, producing it with the engineer 
then mixed it at least three or four times, and that's the final version that be, that became the hit. You you must have known it was going to be a big a good song, but no one can ever know it's going to be a big hit, especially back in those days. Um, you know, before there was like a social media up, like you could sort of watch it organically get popular. But there was one DJ who started playing it right before it was released. Yeah, what happened was, um, you know, the the record labels they may still do for all I know, but they had promotion men, and the promotion man's job was to go to the radio stations in his territory and try to get the music directors and the disc jockeys to get interested in the label's new releases and to play them. And Brandy was not the first single that we released from the album. We had released something else, primarily because Brandy was a little bit more pop than most of the things that we did. And we were concerned that it wasn't a real good um, presentation of what the band was about. So we had put out another track on the album. And it was doing nothing. I mean, it was a total stiff. Nobody played it. Nobody cared about it. And this promotion man named Robert Mandel, I'm still in touch with him. He went into a uh, radio station in Washington, D.C., and he said to the program director, have you heard this new thing that we've got looking less? And the program director said, yeah. He said, we played the record a couple of times, but nothing happened. No reaction whatsoever. It was, you know, nothing. So Robert had a test pressing of an album, a test pressing is a version that they give to pre-release before the album comes out. And Robert said to the program director, uh, he said, well, have you heard this one? I want to play one other track from this album because I think think this one is really the the hit. And he played Brandy for the guy. Uh, This Jackie's name was Harb Moore in Washington, D.C. And uh, he liked it a lot. So he put it on the air right then and there, played it right off the... (laughs) The good old days. Wow, yeah. Good old days, right. All of a sudden, the request lines lit up, you know, like a Christmas tree, as they say. And uh, people were rushing to the stores to buy the record. It wasn't available because there wasn't a single available yet. So when you asked if we know it would become a hit because there was no social media, the record company called us a week after that happened. And they said, you guys are going to have a number one million, million selling record. Oh, wow. How can you possibly know that? And they said, well, we've been doing this enough to know that if it takes off in one major market like this song has, it's going to be the same all over the country, and it's going to be a smash hit. Wow. And it was, they were absolutely right. What what was it like to all of a sudden have a number one hit? Well, of course, I mean, we were thrilled. That's, that's what we were hoping for. We were delighted. We were over the moon. We kind of couldn't believe it. But at the same time, hey, well, this is what we worked for. We got it. We're going to, you know, we're on the road now. We got it. I think Gilbert O'Sullivan's Alone Again Naturally was the other song. So yours is not that that's a bad song, but yours is a much, much better song to listen to 50 years later. You ended up, though, touring with some big names. I mean, you're, you're coming out of being like a, you know, essentially being a college band with some experience. And all of a sudden you're playing with Jeff Beck. I mean, it, it must have been pretty um, daunting. It was it was daunting, but it was very interesting because we had the one hit and the album didn't sell nearly as well as the single did. So we had these tours that were a lot of club dates, you know, three, four hundred, five hundred people where we could headline. But to fill in the dates in between, we would open for much bigger acts. So one night we'd be at a club with three or four hundred people who came to see Looking Glass, and the next night we'd be opening for somebody. And sometimes they were good matchups, like the Jeff Beck group wasn't wasn't a bad matchup. And uh, we did a few even with Steely Dan. Wow. Uh, we did a couple of big festivals with lots of acts. 
but sometimes the matchups weren't the greatest. They had us opening for Alice Cooper at the time. <laughs> yeah. He had the big extravagance show where he, he the guillotine comes down, and, you know, right. and the Alice Cooper fans had they didn't want to know about Brandy or Looking Glass. And we we started we're about halfway through our first song. And boo, get off the stage, we went Alice. So it was it was an interesting experience. But we did get to play uh, Carnegie Hall, the Chip Beck. Yeah, toured, toured a lot. Very, very interesting experience. I loved it. I had never really traveled America. But I was only 22 at the time. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And Brooklyn, New York is not America. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's, it's great, Brooklyn, though. But, yeah. It's not America. So I really loved it because I really learned about people and places in the country that I had no experience with. And then, and then you left. Then you, you ended up in L.A. later, later in life, and had a whole other career in music that is, in many ways, people will have heard the music you either selected or made, the Lizzie McGuire song. People will be very familiar with your work, just not the way they're familiar with Brandy. Yeah, I got very lucky. After Looking Glass broke up, I did a solo album. Nothing happened with that. I was now, you know, about thirty, I guess, maybe. And no record companies wanted to sign me. Uh, you know, there's no interest. I really didn't know what I was going to do. I was living in New York and probably hanging out with not a great crowd of people, you know, late 70s, early 80s in New York. You'd get into a lot of trouble there if you hung out with the wrong people. Right. So I said, I, I got to get out of here. I moved to L.A. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. I, I was, you know, I was going to go to, you know, sell stereos at Radio Shack. And a friend of mine put me in touch with a... Uh, with someone he knew who was an agent for composers in the film industry. And this agent said to me, well, you want to try to write music for films? I said, well, I'm not trained that way. I mean, I can't compete with Joey Goldsmith and John Williams. I mean, I'm, I'm a songwriter. He said, well, what about being a music supervisor? And I had never heard the term before. I didn't know what that was. He said to me, well, it's kind of a new role in the music uh, film business. He said, uh, and there are only about two people who are really doing it successfully so far. And he named two names. And the second name uh, was a woman whom I had worked with when I was doing my solo album in L.A. Uh, her name was Becky Shargo. And she had done Urban Cowboy and Footloose. Wow. So two of the biggest the- soundtracks around, right? I was back and out of the park. Yeah. So I called Becky up and I said, uh, Becky, I moved out here to L.A. I got nothing going on. Do you need any help? And she said, well, I do need help. She said, but I can't I, I can't pay you because I haven't really gotten the royalties in from those big albums yet. And I'm struggling along here. I said to her, well, I'll work for you for free for a while if you'll teach me what this business is about. And I did go to work for her, learned a lot from her. She told me all about it. And then I got a call saying that 20th Century Fox was looking for a new executive to run their music department. There was a transition at the time. The guys who had run the music department in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were guys who could actually get up and conduct the orchestra if they needed a conductor. The guy who I succeeded was a legendary guy named Lionel Newman. He had actually been Marilyn Monroe's rehearsal pianist in addition to conducting the orchestra. He's also Randy Newman was, he's passed, Randy Newman's uncle, and uh, his brother was Alfred Newman, the famous uh, music composer. Right. So I got that job, and it was my first real job ever. You know? <laughs> That's remarkable, yeah. And suddenly I was like a senior executive at a multinational media corporation. <laughs> and I didn't know what the hell I was doing for the first six months or so. But I, I, I learned. I did that for about 10 years and then did 
independent music supervision after that for about another 10, 15 years. Amazing. You worked on some incredible movies. I mean, obviously, the one that pops off is, you know, Night at the Roxbury. I keep thinking, how many times did you have to listen to What is Love by Harry? <laughs> <laughs> I'm nodding my head, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. So you st- do you still perform? Are you still performing, Brandy, now? I, and still, then? I still write songs because I think that's what writers do. Um, I have a little studio at home. Plug, you can find them on any one of the song services. Just look under Elliot Lurie and you'll find the new songs. Well, Elliot Lurie, congratulations on 50 years of Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. It will be one of those songs that uh, our grandkids will probably be listening to as well. So thanks so much. You're very welcome. Good talking to you. It's been more than two years now since Belarus's longtime dictator Alexander Lukashenko claimed victory in national elections there, extending his 26-year reign. Um, he's a good friend of Vladimir Putin's, or at least a friend of convenience of Vladimir Putin's. They play hockey together. I imagine you might have seen some of those videos. They're pretty funny because neither of them can really skate. But anyway, um, and there was a wave of protests met by a violent crackdown. Um, opponents allege that the real winner in 2020 was opposition leader Svetlana Tsitskanovskaya, who only ran after her husband, an opposition politician, was jailed or detained by the regime. Uh, Here she is in 2020 describing what happened in her country. This year, something changed in Belarus, a country of more than 9 million people that has been ruled by an authoritarian leader since 1994. These young women were protesting the latest strict election result, which had taken just a few days earlier. Their small expressions of protest very quickly expanded into massive, peaceful, women-led demonstrations all across the country. Within just a few days, a few hundred thousand people took to the streets and demonstrations have continued ever since, the likes of which Belarus has never seen before. All this despite the fact that the president proclaimed himself re-elected and that more than 10,000 people have been detained, hundreds tortured, and at least six killed. That is Svetlana Tsitskonskaya, now in exile in Latvia, by the way, where she continues her fight for reform in Belarus. Her husband remains in jail in Belarus as we speak. Now, that work took on a whole new dimension after Russia invaded Ukraine. Of course, Putin had propped up his neighbor and the dictator's fellow dictator Lukashenko, both militarily and economically, in the face of those protests. And now Belarus, which also has a border with Ukraine, was used as a launching ground for that war. Over the past few days, Tsitskanovskaya has been in Canada, uh, first attending a security conference in Halifax and then heading to Ottawa to meet with federal officials. It is a first visit to this country for Belarus's exiled opposition leader, where she is looking for tougher sanctions from us on Minsk, sanctions that we can can enforce. Um, And she says her country's soldiers would defect and lay down their weapons if ordered by Russia to or ordered to join Russia's war in Ukraine. And I caught up with her on Sunday from Halifax. And joining me now is Svetlana Tsitskanovskaya. She's Belarus's democratically elected leader, uh, but has been in exile for many years now. And she's in Canada for the first time this first time this week um, to talk about the plight of Belarus to Canadian leadership. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Good morning. For listeners who may not be entirely familiar with what happened back in, uh, in 2020, uh, explain a bit about you won the Democratic, you won the elections in 2020. And after that, there was a crackdown and uh, the current president, Lukashenko, essentially um, 
crackdown on on your on your win and you've been in exile ever since yeah actually you know our country has been living under the dictatorship of lukashenko for 28 years uh in 2020 you know people were fed up with this dictatorship and uh, after fraudulent elections uh people rose up uh, i was an opponent of lukashenko in uh, these elections uh, actually i have never dreamed about uh, politician career, but uh, when it was my husband, you know, who wanted mm-hmm. to participate in elections, but he was jailed uh, and I stepped uh, instead of him. So uh, according to alternative counting of votes, um, I won these elections, and uh, but Lukashenko declared himself as president and massive uh, uprising or revolution took place in uh, Belarus. Uh, many, many weeks uh, in a row, people went out to the streets to oppose their results. But Lukashenko's regime uh, answered with brutality. Thousands of people, about 50,000 of people have been detained at that period of time. I had to flee Belarus uh, because of threats from the government. Uh, the yeah. number of political prisoners was increasing every day. Now the official number is 1,400, but we even don't know about all people who were arrested on political motivated cases. Right, including your husband, right? You're still, he's still in jail. Yeah, my husband is in jail since 2020. And, uh, you know, not only my husband, but all people who are political prisoners, they uh, endure extreme difficulties in jails because the attitude to them is much worse than to ordinary prisoners. Uh, You know, people are often put in punishment cells. They are abused. They are tortured. They are humiliated physically and morally just to show that you are an enemy of this regime and you have to suffer. Clearly what's happened is, we, I remember people were paying a lot of attention to what was going on in Belarus, but the war in Ukraine has, has overshadowed a lot of things. What would you hope to achieve during your visit? So uh, I'm really glad to be here. It's my first uh, official visit here. I'm going to meet Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs and to talk to parliamentarians about the situation in Belarus. Uh, now, yes, you're right that uh, all the world attention is focused on Ukraine and actually we fully support uh, this attention. But maybe people in Canada don't know how fates of Ukraine and Belarus are intertwined. Because when the war has started and Lukashenko dragged our country into this war, he became collaborant to Putin, accomplice to Putin, gave our territories for uh, Russian equipment, for Russian troops, and actually uh, several cities of uh, Ukraine have been have been bombed from territory of Belarus. Belarus became a country co-aggressor. And not a lot of people know that it's very important to distinguish Belarusian regime and Belarusian people, Mm -hmm. because Belarusian people are opposing to the war. When the war has started, massive rally took place in Belarus. And since then, you can be detained not only when you're opposing the regime, but also when you show anti-war mood. If you uh, sing Ukrainian song, if you go with Ukrainian flag or you comment um, on Twitter, for example, with anti-war position, you also can be sentenced for many, many years in jail. Really? Uh, We are asking uh, all democratic countries, including Canada, to um, support certain people to get rid of the regime. We are asking uh, our democratic allies to create multiple points of pressure on the regime, political pressure, economic pressure through sanctions on the one hand, but on the other hand, to help our people to keep the energy you 
you know, to move on because two years of fight is rather long period of time and people are getting exhausted. But when people see that they are welcomed in uh, the Western world, in the world of democracy, that we feel uh, this support and we get energy from this. We are asking uh, Canada to assist our uh, military volunteers, uh, Belarusian military volunteers who are fighting on the side of Ukrainians at this very moment. I, I, I know that uh, Canadian people and Canadian government are stand with Belarusians, but uh, we would be grateful for practical help. Svetlana Tsikhodinskaya is with us this half hour. She is Belarus's uh, leader in exile, really the winner of the 2020 uh, democratic elections in Belarus. Uh, she's not. She's in exile now. Her husband has been imprisoned. We know there was a crackdown on the democracy movement in Belarus. She's in Canada visiting our leadership, looking for support for democracy in in Belarus as well. Uh, Svetlana, when you look at the, the fates of Ukraine, I mean, clearly whatever happens in Ukraine is going to have such a huge impact on Belarus, how much how much change has happened within the country itself? Because it's hard to tell from the outside. How much change has there been since the war in Ukraine started back in February? You know, when Ukrainian uh, Russian Ukrainian war started, the Belarusian people uh, have been united in anti-war movement. But because uh, people in Belarus now live in, in the atmosphere of tyranny and terror with everyday detentions, it's difficult to uprise uh, visibly. And so that's why our uh, movement, uh, you know, went underground. And actually, when the war has started, uh, Belarusian partisans made 80 acts of sabotage on railways. That's and right. through yeah, through Belarusian territory, Russian equipment, Russian troops were delivered by railway, and it actually slowed down uh, Russian invasion on uh, uh, Kiev. But you know what's going on now in, in Belarus through uh, Belarusian and uh, Russian propaganda, Lukashenko's regime try uh, to persuade Belarusian people that Ukrainians are our enemies, that they uh, are going to attack us. And it's also a very uh, serious problem, and we have to counter this propaganda. We are trying to deliver Belarusian people who are inside the country the truth. And uh, Lukashenko's regime uh, proclaimed all the alternative media as Extremists, and if right. a person inside the country read uh, alternative media or uh, watching YouTube uh, um, video of those media, they also can be uh, jailed and sen- sentenced for years in jail. I mean, Absolutely. we see we, we see Lukashenko and Putin playing hockey together. I mean, are they actually friends, <laughs> or or because clearly, Vlad, the, you know, the Kremlin doesn't respect Belarusian identity any more than it respects Ukrainian identity. Not a friendship between Lukashenko and Putin. I would say it's symbiotic uh, friendship. You know, they just use each other when it's necessary. Now Lukashenko and Putin need each other because uh, Putin or uh, Lukashenko needs Putin as uh, his political uh, guarantee. And without Putin, Lukashenko wouldn't politically survived in 2020. Uh, Putin supported him. For Putin, Lukashenko uh, is necessary as a loyal partner who fulfills all uh, Putin's orders, just allow Russian troops to be on our land, to uh, allow Russian equipment or Russian training at our territory. <laughs> it's fake yeah. friendship, actually. Yeah, but clearly, when we look at what's happening in Ukraine, it's hard to ignore what's happening. And I mean, we haven't spent as much time paying attention to it. But the fate of Belarus has already had its democratic uprising, its its color revolution, so to speak, although I guess we never gave it a color, but it it exists there. There is a movement towards freedom in Belarus that could be easily um, resurrected, I would think. 
because our resistance to this regime uh, hasn't uh, stopped for a day since 2020. As I said, it's difficult to be vocal at the moment when uh, in Belarus people can be detained for speaking Belarusian language, for singing Belarusian songs, actually. And uh, so we live in state of uh, terror and tyranny, but uh, undergroundly we are trying to do at least small steps, you know, showing that we are still here. And Lukashenko is afraid of people. He's afraid of, he acts as if thousands of people are still uh, in front of his palace. Right. And he, he might keep his power only thanks to violence and to support of Putin. And uh, actually, people who um, fled Belarus, our Belarusian diasporas all over the world also uh, uh, work very actively, you know, to create this political pressure on Lukashenko from different parts of the world. And we build already a coalition of democratic countries who are working not with illegitimate regime, but working with democratic movement, with civil society, you know, and step by step, we are like getting this political space from Lukashenko and, uh, you know, Lukashenko will never be accepted in the democratic world, uh, in the Western world, uh, because he's war criminal, he uh, committed crimes against Belarusian people and he, of course, he has to bear the full responsibility for what he has done. Svetlana, do you have any hope that you'll be able to, to live one day, to go back to Belarus, live with your family, be free? Uh, I'm sure that uh, this will happen because the processes that uh, have started in 2020 and even before, um, they are unstoppable. The future of uh, our country, you know, in, to some extent depend on the outcome of the war in Ukraine. And yes. I'm sure that uh, Ukrainians will win with the support of the whole world, with the support of Belarusians. And we are not just, you know, sitting and waiting uh, when Ukrainians win. We are building structures on the ground. We are coordinating our actions uh, with those who are in Belarus and those who are in exile. Just we are preparing so-called victory plan when one day all the military infrastructures or institutions will be uh, peacefully blocked and when people will go out uh, out to the streets there will be no uh, military no kgb you know to beat people you've paid it, it must be tough for you though it's been two years now and, and you've had to work very hard you've had to live away it's, it must be difficult just for you personally for you and your family of course it's difficult you know i uh every day you feel uh pain you feel pain for your husband for all those who uh are in jails who sacrificed actually they freedom some with their lives to give us opportunity to uh work further uh, when you see new detentions you when you uh, hear the stories how people have been beaten and tortured uh, in jails uh, you understand that look you don't have right to stop you might be exhausted, you might be overstressed, but you feel inspiration from your people, you feel inspiration from the countries who wants to help us, and you know you're sure that one day you, you will have uh, opportunity to return uh, together with your children, to meet with your husband, and to build a new democratic and free Belarus together. Svetlana Tsiskanovskaya, thank you so much for your time tonight, and welcome to Canada. I hope your, your trip is a successful one. I hope so as well. Thank you so much.